0: Of hands, how many of you like black coffee? All right, well, the book of James is for you. This book gives you what you need no cream, no sugar, just get straight to the point. And uh, we've been in James chapter 2 all month. We're finishing up our series, ironically enough, Live Dead this morning. And uh, hopefully, this, uh, this month, we've caused you to reflect on your faith. Because I know after preaching this series, um, our staff, it's caused us to really reflect on our own faith and challenge us in that way. How would you define your faith? Or even better, how would other people describe your faith? A lot of times we, we tend to describe ourselves based on our motives. We, you know, we convince ourselves that what we said wasn't what we meant sometimes or what we did, it wasn't a, a fair representation of how we actually felt. What people heard was taken out of context. And we tend to give ourselves uh, quite a bit of, of room for mistakes in that way. But when it comes to other people, we don't really do that, do, do we? we? We judge it based on the results. We, we judge them based on their actions, on what they do. And uh, this is why the book of James is so important Because it puts into perspective how important our actions are, especially to those who are not Christians. Guess what? Nobody really cares about your theology. They care about how you treat them. I'm not saying that theology isn't important. It's important. But they care way more about how you treat them. They don't really care about your Facebook post that says, I love Jesus, and if you love him too, you'll share this ten times. Okay, they don't really care about that. They care about when they're going through something tough, what are you actually going to do to come alongside of them? Your beliefs require a response. In James chapter 2 and verse 18, um, Pastor Mark touched on this a few weeks ago, James, he makes a comparison between a, a believing Christian with no action to demons. He says, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there's one God? Good. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. But but think about that comparison that he's making. He's saying your beliefs don't really differentiate you all that much from the demons, but your actions do. Real faith, living faith, it's the sum of your belief and actions. James chapter 2, verse 24. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So last week, Pastor Mark, he talked about and dove into the story of Abraham and his faith-filled story and how Abraham was willing to give up anything for God. And he had faith that drove his actions. And today we're going to get into the story that James just referenced of Rahab. But James chapter 2 is still our framework. That's what we've been working out of this entire month. And faith is the topic of discussion. But to get deeper into that, we're going to go um, Old Testament style this morning. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 2. And I love this story. It's a story of espionage. It's a story of spies. It's a story of double agents. And uh, so, just to let you know where this story's kind of at, historically-wise, God's chosen people, the Israelites, they had been enslaved by the Egyptians. God used Moses to help deliver them from the Egyptians and told them that he was going to bring them to this promised land. Uh, But because of their habitual disobedience, they had to take the long way around and wandered for 40 years through the wilderness, and they finally arrive at their destination— Moses has since passed on, and Joshua, he is the new face of the Israelites, the poster child. And so we are now in Joshua chapter 2, verse 1, if you want to turn there, otherwise it'll be up on the screen also. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Careful how you say that word. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Now, what I find interesting is just because your promise is in hand, it doesn't mean that you don't have to fight for it anymore, okay? They, they've been brought to their destination, okay? Their, their promise is right there. They've got it, but it doesn't mean that now they just get to, to let go. They, they still have some fighting to do for it. The Israelites arrive there, but there are still people that are residing in this land. And so Joshua, he, he sends two spies. He says, I want you to go to this land. I, I want you to view it, especially this, this city called Jericho, this stronghold. And reconnaissance and espionage, um, it's as wo- old as war itself. And so instead of just you know plowing in there with uh, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of soldiers and wasting a bunch of lives... Um, they're going to send some spies in there first to try to get all the information they can get. They're going to look for weak points in the city. They're going to try to find any kind of tactical advantage that they can possibly get. And so the spies make their way into the city. Now imagine if you were one of these spies trying to keep your cool. Okay, you're going in there. You know you're a spy. You're really hoping they don't know you're a spy because if you get caught— yeah, you're worse than dead. They're, they're going to take you. They're probably going to torture you for any information they can get. And then they're going to kill you. And so this would be a, a very psychologically, you know, trying time to sneak in there as spies. But, so they need to keep up this appearance of just being a couple of guys who are passing through. You know, they just need lodging for the night. And they're going to, you know, stay in Jericho. And then they're going to move on their way. And so they fi- find a house of a prostitute named Rahab. And it's actually a pretty good cover story, because prostitution was, you know, pretty accepted at that time, and it was especially popular among travelers. Um, so them being these travelers was actually a pretty good cover story with them. And there might have been another motive, too, for them staying with Rahab. It was likely that Rahab had been with high-ranking officials at some point within the city of Jericho, um, either government or militarily. And so having that kind of access, Highly increased the chance that maybe these spies could have some conversations and and get some information out of Rahab. Verse 2. The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. And uh, so the king of Jericho finds out. He not only finds out that they're spies, he knows where they're from. They're, they're from Israel. And uh, so they are at, and they're at Rahab's house. And so he sends messengers and says, hey, Rahab, bring these guys out. They're spies. They're bad guys. Verse 4. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up to them. But she had taken them up on the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. So Rahab, she is a professional at the art of deception. In fact, she knew what was happening before the king even sent those messengers because she had already taken the men and she had already hidden them on top of the roof. She already has a, an alibi, already manufactured, saying, oh, yeah, well, yeah, they came here, um, but they left before dark. They wanted to get out of here before that, the gate was about to close. And so she sends these, these soldiers from Jericho on a rabbit chase, her own people. She's, she's now operating as a double agent within her own city. She says, I don't know where they went, but hurry up and go. I, I bet you'll catch up to them really quick. Start running. Meanwhile, Rahab, she's brought the Israelite men up onto the roof. They used to use um, rooftops in that time for drying grain. And so there was all these grain stocks drying out and she had hid the, the men underneath them. So the soldiers from Jericho, they exit the city, chasing after the spies and the city gates are shut. Verse eight, before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us. So that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sahon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I've shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the life of my father and mother, brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. So here we see Rahab share her beliefs. But the thing is, her, her confession, it, it isn't really necessary. She's already proven what she believed. This explanation was simply a confirmation of what she had already lived out. Actions speak louder than words. Notice how, how in verse 9 she says, I know. She doesn't say, ah, I, I think your God's the real, real deal. She doesn't say, you know, a word on the street is that you guys are a scary group and, you know, you've got a God who does stuff. She says, I know. But what stands out to me really is the, the order that she does things in. She started with action, then she shared her beliefs, and then she gave her reasoning for those beliefs. And it seems completely backwards because the way that we typically do things is we start with reason, you know, and we follow our line of reasoning, and then we get to our beliefs, and then we say, okay, we got our beliefs, and then, then we kind of use those beliefs, and then if that lines up how we want, then we take action based on that. But she did it completely the other way way around. Rahab had amazing faith. Her faith was so strong that she literally staked her life on this. Faith is tied to risk. It doesn't take a whole lot of faith if you know the full process, you know the end result, you know what's going to happen along the way. Rahab risked her life for these Israelite spies before any promise or deal had been made between them. She didn't have a guarantee of anything. She doesn't know these men. She could go hide them on the roof, and then later when they come down, she doesn't know, they could kill her. She, she has no idea. Why would she trust these men? She does, she's never met them. That's a risk. So instead of trying to evaluate your current faith level, I don't know how you do that anyways. There's not an algorithm. Think about it this way. Ask yourself, in what ways am I taking risks that require faith? It brings us right back to what James was talking about in chapter 2. Taking the risk. That's, that's the action part. And I bet if you're honest, if I'm honest, when we really start to think about it, we realize how privileged we are. Seriously, think about about the risks that you've taken in the last five years. Now, I'm not trying to downplay hardship because I know that we all go through serious stuff like health issues and broken marriages and financial troubles. But when was the last time you embraced risk, took action for God, not knowing what the result was going to be? And as I think about that, I can come up with things but then I hear stories of missionaries giving up everything to move to another country. I read stories like Rahab, where she's literally willing to risk her life. And all of a sudden, the list that I came up with, some of that stuff starts to seem kind of insignificant. And it causes me to question, is that, that lack of risk in my life, is it a byproduct of living in this country because of the, the wealth and the freedom that we have here? Or have I accepted and condoned this easy life where I create this buffer to kind of keep risk away, to keep away situations that require faith? And this is how my mind works. Maybe you're different, but after a while, it kind of like becomes like an insult on my masculinity. I don't even know who I'm talking to, but I'm like, I can risk. I can risk things. And, I, you know, I kind of get in, like, my own head, like, yeah, I'll, I'll do big things, and it kind of becomes this, you know, like, my mind starts to overcompensate. I'm not afraid, and this is a bigger, better mindset, this one-upper mindset. But I don't think that's the answer either, okay? We're, we're not all supposed to leave here today and have a competition about who can risk the most, and then we come back next week and, you know, see who, who risked the most. That's, that's not what we're supposed to do either. So what kind of action is James talking about. It's unlikely that most of us are going to be tested like Abraham was with his son Isaac. I doubt many of us are going to become spies that work with double agent call girls. I think it's a lot simpler than that. James, he didn't start with these dramatic stories of faith. He started with this. He says, Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is that? We don't want to get pulled into that trap of just doing grand gestures to be noticed. Okay, that's definitely not the way we want to go. But I also don't think that that's really the common problem. We do need to live lives that are noticeably different. I don't hear very often Christians accused of pride and ego. Those things exist, okay? We deal with those just as much as anyone else. But most often you hear Christians called hypocrites. They're saying, you say you believe this, but I don't see you living it out. Or worse yet, the I, I this just makes my heart break every time I, I hear this. Sometimes I have people like, I, I just don't really get it. I don't get the whole God, church, religion thing because... We're just not really that different. Our lives seem kind of the same. You know, that's, that's the worst one of all. I want to do something a little bit different this morning. Too often we, we have a sermon. We have a, a conversation about God or spiritual disciplines. And, and even if there is a, a specific call to action, a way to apply what we just heard, the sermon ends and it's kind of like, see you next week. And, and we walk out the door and... Daily life has a way of taking over our thought life almost instantaneously. And, you know, we walk out those doors and all of a sudden it's like lunch plans, football games, errands to run, getting ready for another work week. And so we're going to take a few minutes and we're going to let the Holy Spirit reveal areas in our lives where we need to start being faith-filled and take risks. But we're not going to wait to take action. We're gonna start taking action now. And uh, so we're gonna take a a little bit of a, do a risky thing, we're gonna have an open mic. And uh, if you feel that the Holy Spirit is telling you to take a risk in something, to step out in faith in an area of your life, I want you to come up and I want you to share what that is. God might be telling you or putting on your heart, heart to finally forgive that family member that ex-spouse, that friend, and to move forward without that bitterness, but it's been there for a long time and you don't even know what life would look like without that. God might be telling you to start prioritizing him with giving for the first time. He might be telling you to change careers. He might be telling you to move to the Middle East. But you might not even know where to start. And just a disclaimer, this This isn't going to be a time for extra preaching, long testimonies, prophecies. It's a time to take action, share what God is asking you to risk. It could be something small. It could be something really big. And and I don't want you to be nervous about, you know, who you are or what this thing is. I don't care if you're a pastor here. I don't care if you're the lead pastor, a board member, a college student. This applies to all of us. Let me just pray really quick. Holy Spirit, just right now in this room, I just pray that you would just impress upon all of us right now areas where you want us to take risk, areas that require faith. I just pray that you would speak clearly to each of us right now. Amen. So I'm going to have this mic. I'm just going to kind of hang around, hang around on stage. Let the Holy Spirit show you areas where you need a boost of risk and faith. And if you feel like the Holy Spirit is impressing something on you, I just want you to walk up and I'll just hand you the mic.